There's a big sign up here. Teacher, turn on the mic. But do we read it? No. So tonight I wanted to talk about anicca impermanence. I was thinking with the weather lately, I hardly need to talk about it. It's really quite obvious. But I want to talk about it from the point of view of um, how the Buddha speaks about accurate perception being the doorway to liberation, to understanding. When he talks about the nature of insight, freeing insight, the nature of insight is it's not about creating some new reality that if we meditate hard enough or study hard enough, somehow we create a different world that's better and impermanent and not self and all. It's not like we're moving from permanence to impermanence. But we just don't recognize accurately. And the nature of perception, when the Buddha talks about right view, the translation into English, right view, I like that translation because it's, it's almost literal. We're viewing accurately the way things are. We're recognizing the way things already are. And so, in a way, in terms of, uh, well, the three characteristics, really, as you know, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, anatta, not-self, all three of those, and I think I'm going to give a talk on each of them this, this month, but all three of them, the way we're caught and why we suffer is, yeah, we resist them, we don't understand them, but on the deepest level, we don't understand them because we don't recognize accurately. And what gets in the way of recognizing accurately our old friends, while we go on and on and on about our friends, the kalesis, you know, greed, wanting, hatred, aversion, and delusion, both not having a clue what's going on, not paying any attention, or making it all about me. So I want to start, though, by talking about the perception of impermanence. These distortions of perception, the the Buddha talked about them. He calls them vipalasa, distortions of the mind. Um, There are four. I'm only going to talk about three this month. These four, O monks, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, and distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing. Sensing pleasure in suffering and what is unsatisfying. Assuming self where there is no self. Sensing the unlovely as lovely. Gone astray with wrong views. Beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, these people are far from safety. They're beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. This is Andy Olensky's translation distortions of mind. I'll go into it uh, a little more specifically in a moment. But uh, I find it fascinating in particular about impermanence of the three characteristics. To me, it seems like on an intellectual understanding level, impermanence is the most obvious. I mean, uh, probably people here wouldn't really argue that our bodies and minds are permanent. I mean, in an intellectual discussion, we can, I'm assuming, 
that we could agree, yeah, stuff's changing all the time. That's right. And I may or may not be comfortable with it, but it's something that intellectually we can get. But do we really? You know, what would it mean if we were actually living from the cellular knowing of the way things are in terms of impermanence, of the fact that no experience of mind or body lasts for more than a split second. That's the level that impermanence, that's how things are. What would it mean to live from that? You know, and our mind that isn't quite there isn't, you know, really thrilled about that idea. And even when I think, yes, I understand impermanence, if I think, what would it be to live from it? The Buddha often said, you know, that um, whatever is impermanent is inherently unsatisfying. That if we really recognize the changing impermanent nature of something, we so deeply see it that we can't cling to it to, to satisfy our hearts and minds, because it just doesn't make any sense. He says that often. Do I really believe that? And that he doesn't say you hate everything because it's impermanent, just that we know it's inherently unsatisfying. And he also says over and over, can whatever be impermanent, can that be self? He says this in many suttas, and the, the monks and nuns always go, no reverence, sir, it cannot be self. And that's always like proof that there's no self. But I think, do we actually live from that? Do we believe that? Just because the Buddha said it, do we believe it? So I think part of our practice, our exploration, is not to try and make ourselves believe another view. That's not freeing or helpful. But instead to look and see what we do believe, how we do act, and then start to explore and cultivate the Buddha, what the Buddha calls the perception of permanence of impermanence, I mean. We do cultivate the perception of permanence all the time. So this is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust. It eliminates all lust for existence. That's all wanting for becoming. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots all conceit, I am. That's a really powerful statement. Those four things, that's equivalent to arhat, complete liberation in the Buddha's teaching. The perception of impermanence when developed and cultivated eliminates sensual lust, lust for becoming ignorance, and uproots all conceit, I am. That's incredibly powerful. And what I love about it, I love, I love um, exploring perception anyway. I think it's a fascinating place of study. And so what we mean by perception is simply with any sense contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, moods in the mind, with any sense contact, the perception, sanya in the Pali, I'm sure most of you know that this, is what the Buddha described as, you could call it the recognition faculty. So on a, on a kind of gross level, perception would be paper. I see this as paper. Knowing I'm seeing is a kind of perception. Seeing people is a perception. A name is a perception. 
Um, and those are obvious perceptions. And he's talking on a subtle level that we don't perceive, we don't recognize the constant, subtle, changing nature of experience. That we literally perceive things to be solid and permanent. And so, I mean, I could do a whole nother talk on, on perception itself, so I'm not going to do that tonight. But just to, to explore the power of this perception of permanence and perception of impermanence and start to bring mindfulness to this area, not to make ourselves right or wrong, but to recognize what are we perceiving. So this place where the, the Buddha talks about these distortions of perception, of thought, and of view, this is another thing I love about exploring perception. Because how we perceive, like I perceive paper, or I perceive a certain person. How we perceive, that's the dist- of sanya, and the distortion of perception would be, say, for example, perceiving permanence, leads to how we think about something. And that's what he calls a distortion of thought. So we don't recognize that we're thinking about something as permanent, but that's how we perceive it. And so then our perception, our thoughts about it are, and see if this happens to you at all, ever in the day. Oh, no, this terrible mood. How am I going to get through the rest of the day with this mood like this? How am I going to get through the rest of the retreat if it keeps on raining like this? How can I, you know, oh, now finally, finally I've hit into that place of smooth samadhi, and now it's going to be smooth sailing for the rest of the time. Or we try to recreate, and all these thoughts about that becomes distortions of thinking. And that then leads to distortions of view, of ditti, which would be wrong view rather than right view, where we don't even recognize that we're assuming the permanence of anything. And so perception is quick and subtle, but it's extremely powerful when we don't recognize it. So it's a fascinating place to explore. And so that's why he's saying cultivate the perception. Again, Buddha, there is no form, no feeling tone, no Vedana, no perception, No volitional formation means intention or any of the actions of our mind. And no consciousness that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and that will remain the same just like eternity itself. None. This is the Buddha. Then he took up a little bit of dirt uh, in his fingernail. And he said to the bhikkhu, there's not even this much form the amount of dirt in his fingernail, not even this much form that is stable, that is permanent, that will not change. He said, if there was even this much form that was permanent, that was stable, that was eternal, then this living of the holy life for the destruction of suffering could not be discerned. So there can't be even a little bit, not that there can't be, there isn't. There isn't, or we couldn't see through. Because what frees our heart and mind is seeing how things really are. And then clinging, for example, doesn't make any sense. The stuff that we really know, like the sunset, pretty much all of us have seen quite a few sunsets in our life, right? Pretty much 
we let it go. You may cry because it's so beautiful, but you're not like, oh, no, come back, come back, come back, sunset. No, don't go, don't go. I don't know. We were talking today about <laughs> this changing of season, you know, and how hard it might be for some of you who are from warmer, sunnier climes to come here in the fall when the days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And then we started thinking, what, was to, what must it be like, like in northern Sweden, you know, or, or Finland or something like that? So now I was just thinking, based on that conversation, maybe on the last day that the sun's going to show up for four months, maybe you do go, no, 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 don't go away. But you know it's hopeless. So, so I want to talk a little bit, just various thoughts I have about uh, how the delusion that gets in the way of perceiving accurately in terms of anicca, in terms of impermanence, some of the ways it shows up, some of the ways it manifests. And I'm sure you can come up with other examples and other ways it manifests in your own experience. I'm by no means thinking this is exhaustive. But I saw an interesting list somewhere. I can't remember where. I've looked, but I like it. It seems true wherever I found it. Three ways that moha or delusion can manifest in our experience, particularly in terms of like this. The first is just plain inattention, right? Delusion, we're just not even noticing what's going on. La, 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 la. I mean, this is what mindfulness is really here to help us with. I've noticed personally, I have like aversive type temperament, which really notices everything, what's wrong, what's right, how it should be. And that's been getting less. And guess what? Delusion's coming up. I walk into a room, oh, has that picture been here? Is that a new picture I say to people? And they look at me and say, no, Carol, it's been here 10 years. I mean, this, I'm not making this up. It's embarrassing, you know? But that kind of just inattention. And I gather you might be familiar with that sometimes happening. And so we just don't really notice what's happening, accurately or inaccurately. The second is um, denial, the quality in our minds. Sometimes we can even see ourselves doing it and pretend it's not happening. But the mind is basically going, no, that's not true. It's not like that. That's on the most gross level. I think in terms of what I notice in terms of um, impermanence, especially in the bigger aspects of impermanence, of things we love going away, is both the denial of denial in terms of this, it shouldn't be this way. It's not supposed to happen. And the resistance that can come with that, the resistance to the change itself, or the resistance to the sadness, or the loss, or whatever way that comes up for us. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And the third, and this is on that level of vipalasas that I was talking about, the distortions of perception, the third way that delusion, that moha, manifests in our experience is by misperceiving, by just recognizing wrongly. And someone was, was telling me today in uh, his experience, just, just giving me funny little examples of how he saw somebody his mind completely made up. I know this person, this person's sick, this is all going on with this person. And then recognizing later that he was completely and totally wrong. You know, his mind had just made it up. Well, I love it when we can at least see that. To see how that process works 
Because until we're really awakened when we're suffering, that process of really just recognizing wrongly is going on a lot of the time. So that's, I want to talk about these two, uh, these ways for a moment, how they might show up in our experience with impermanence. So the, the, not, the not recognizing impermanence or, or even more the, the resistance, you know, the denial, the sadness. I don't think um, this is news to anybody. The kind of strategy that seems to uh, be the habit of our mind and is certainly what the Buddha was pointing to in the Four Noble Truths, our strategy in the face of the fact that there actually is no stability anywhere, that there is no steadfast reliability of anything. And when we hear this and we're still looking for reliability, mostly we don't like that too much. This is actually an interesting thing to me about all three of the characteristics, that when we're not quite seeing through them. And we all have moments of seeing through them. It's not like you see through them once and it's over. You know, We see through them. Everyone here has seen through them all. You wouldn't be here. And then we get back in the misperception again. But what's interesting to me is all three of them, impermanence or unreliability or not self, the times we're not seeing through them, the thought of them, it's not pleasant. It's not uplifting. It's not, oh, yeah, great. There's no reliability or stability anywhere. Let's hear more about that. That's great. Nothing in this world gives satisfaction. Wonderful. That's why I came to practice. But when we understand them, they're the source of freedom and joy and a much deeper, like living in three dimensions instead of living in two. That's how I think of it. That's how it seems to me. So the seeing through them, the accurate perception, is the source of a much more beautiful, sensitive, connected, free life. But we resist it with every cell in our body half the time. So the main way we resist, this isn't news to anybody, with impermanence is, is, is the fear, their denial, and clinging. It seems to be, as the Buddha pointed out in the second noble truth, that our strategy to, to find some stability, to try and hide from impermanence or deny it, or at least somehow find a place of safety within it, is to cling, right? The mind that tries to hold on to anything, to sense pleasures, we all know that. That's the obvious one, to views, to ideas, to experiences, to relationships, to family, to situations, to comfort in our body, to whatever, to our ideas about who we are, to our personality. We may hate our personality, but we'll cling to it, you know, come hell or high water. Don't give me someone else's personality. I just want to hate my own. But it's, it's so poignant to me really touching because the clinging in a way it, it's you know it's, it's the deepest clinging I feel is this kind of this clinging to really be free this yearning 
for wholeness, for connectedness. And what we experience with the impermanence is the constancy of loss. As long as there's a sense of me trying to hold myself separate from all the changing experience. And it gets like that sometimes with impermanence. Everything else around me is changing, you know. So then it's just constant loss. We forget to turn around and say, oh, this part's changing too. But it's so poignant because it can really be a response of deepest yearning for understanding, for freedom, at least for peace. And that's the misperception that the peace will come if I can just hold on to this, whatever, you know. And you all know whatever it is in your life, and it could be something really simple. It can be something really complex. And again, I know you know this, but I just need to say it. Seeing that clinging brings suffering because it's based on recognizing wrongly does not mean that we hate the things that we cling to. It's the clinging that's the source of suffering because it keeps us from recognizing accurately. But it doesn't mean then, oh, I shouldn't cling to relationships, so forget about relationship. What do you mean not cling to family? You're saying I shouldn't love my family? What do you mean? And that's not what I'm saying at all. It's not the object. It's the process of trying to hold on to what's already gone by the time we notice it and think, oh, yeah, this is going to make me happy. That, and of course, duh, this is the same pattern that we bring into our meditation, don't we? You've probably noticed that, all the ups and downs. By the time the thought comes, now I've figured out how to have a good sitting. It's over by the time you've had that thought. You're into wanting. You may not notice it for a while because you want to pretend we're still back in that really peaceful sitting. But as soon as it's, oh, how can I make this happen again? It's gone. That's why we're saying, what's here now? What's here now? What's here now? And clinging, when we don't recognize it, is what freezes our perception, freezes our experience. It's what keeps us from recognizing what's here now. It's so poignant because really the clinging is in the service of bringing us peace and happiness. I read somewhere in the suttas, the search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. But we cling thinking it will bring us happiness. This is a fragment of a poem from Galway Canal called Little Sleep's Head Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. You scream, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. I think, you think, I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun Don't go down. I have stood by as you told the flower. Don't grow old. Don't die. Little Maud, and yet perhaps this is the reason you cry. This the nightmare you wake screaming from. Being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. 
I love that because I get the poignancy and the love and that subtle undercurrent. We're all in the pre-trembling of a house that falls, whether it's about sense experience, whether it's about our external situation, whether it's about our body, our life itself. And this denial, this clinging, you know, kind of pretend just hold on, hold on, hold on. So when we can't resist or avoid acknowledging change, we're just overwhelmed by the sadness, by the suffering. We just, the mind doesn't like uncertainty. (laughs) I heard on the radio today, it really made me laugh on the news. It was going on about the, the European debt crisis ongoing, not fixed somehow yet. And uh, the, the, the news person was saying, talking about the effect of this ongoing thing on, on politics and governments. And so this is a quotation of what they were saying. Politics now in Europe is being driven by the stock markets. And the stock markets hate uncertainty. <laughs> like what world do they live in? So, so they pressure this or that government, this or that political figure to stay in office or resign or to do X, Y, Z. And I just was cracking up. I think, what do they think? They hate uncertainty, so they, they think if this happens, there'll be no more uncertainty. If this political figure resigns, if this bank does this, if this government decides this, then no more uncertainty. You know, it's like, just, it's, it's, it's nuts. But we all, and it was said so, so straight-faced. Oh, they hate uncertainty, so they try to do this to stop it from being uncertain. So it's just so poignant, this clinging. And also, then, the other aspect besides the clinging, that's what I was saying, is opening to when we can no longer hide from the fact of change in whatever form it's taking. But usually when it's a problem, we don't mind change when something we really hate is going away, do we? Then we all go, yeah, impermanence, that's great. So I'm talking about the denial in the form of when, when change comes that's really hard for us, that's loss, that's sadness, that brings up sadness and fear. Again, why, do, why does the stock market, not that the stock market's a thing, why do people on the stock market hate uncertainty? Okay, because of greed, they want money, that's true. And on the other deeper level, we don't want every, every step is into the unknown. Every moment, we don't know what's going to happen next. And that is just so unsettling to us. But when we start to really get it cellularly, it doesn't mean, as far as I can tell, until we're completely awakened, it doesn't mean we don't feel the poignancy, the sadness, the sense of loss. And I just, this is only my own personal Um, feeling about it. But I actually think part of our practice, part of opening to the truth of things, is to also open into the sense of loss. Someone that's dear to us becomes ill and dies. It's not like, okay, maybe the Buddha could say they will not be seen by me again. But we're most likely going to really feel a lot of things. Sadness, loss, anger, whatever. That's okay. What we've been saying in this whole 
practice of mindfulness is simply bring kind, non-judging attention to whatever is happening. So when there's loss and there's sadness, we can be with the sadness. It's part of our humanness. But we, we tend to be so resistant to the unpleasant, right? Unpleasant means something's wrong, so this shouldn't have happened. This illness shouldn't have happened. This loss shouldn't have happened. This death shouldn't have happened. Something's wrong. And instead of saying, no, this is life. There's beauty. There's love. There's beautiful things coming. And there's loss. And there's beautiful things going. And there's sadness. And all of this, opening to all of this, is what opening into impermanence is about. And, you know, even in the in the suttas, I'm... I'm sure most of you know this story about Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. There's, in, if you read all the, well, I haven't read all the suttas, but in many of the suttas, different of the monks and nuns, you start to get a little sense of their personality. They pop up, some of the main ones pop up a lot. And Ananda, being that he was the Buddha's attendant for 25 years, and also that he was present or he remembered every discourse the Buddha gave. So he's very present in the suttas. And he also, he's partly awakened, but he's not a complete arhat for all those 25 years. And with Ananda, you often, one often gets a sense of just his humanness. He's kind of, you can almost feel like he's a stand-in for us in some way. Maybe he's, you know, a better stand-in, but anyway, you can relate to him often. He'll make mistakes, and the Buddha will go, no, Ananda, that's not so. Like one time he was saying, oh, I understand dependent origination. It's so obvious. It's so simple. And the Buddha goes, no, Ananda, it is not simple. <laughs> Do not say that. So when the Buddha was announcing that he was going to die in a certain amount of time, and um, Ananda, and this is when he was 80 years old, and I, I couldn't find the sutta, but I can paraphrase it, I remember it. Um, he's sitting there talking to people, the Buddha, and suddenly he realized Ananda has disappeared. And he says, uh, friend, go, go find Ananda and ask him to come here. So the other monks go and find Ananda, and there's this image, which Andy Olinsky tells me is a an image that's in Buddhist art often, although I, I haven't actually seen it myself, but it's, it's described in the sutta very specifically that Ananda's standing in the doorway of his hut and he's leaning up against the, the door frame, just weeping in such deep sorrow, you know, saying, the teacher who has done so much for me is leaving. What will I do? And I still have so much work to do. And he was just weeping from sadness that the Buddha was going to pass away. This is 25 years of listening to all the Buddha's suttas, so we could cut ourselves a little slack that we're not, you know, perfect yet. So the Buddha, of course, calls him, and you can imagine, says, Ananda, <laughs> Ananda, what's going on? You know, of course, he knew what was going on. And, and just says very kindly but very directly, enough, Ananda, have I not told you? Everything that is subject to arising, everything that comes together by conditions is going to pass away when the conditions change. Enough of your grief. That's just how it is. Not good, not bad. That's just how it is. And so 
I love that about Ananda because it's just, yeah, that's our human reaction. We don't need to be ashamed of it. And we don't need to push it away. Because when we try, oh, no, no, I don't want to feel sadness, so let's not acknowledge that change is happening. Let's not even go there. But no, we can actually, I find, to, to use the sadness, to use the resistance when you become aware of it as a wake-up call. Oh, something you're not quite knows. What's actually happening now? It is said that the Buddha said when his two chief disciples, uh, Sariputta and Moggallana, died within a week of one another. And when they were gone, it said he looked out. He could tell the difference. It wasn't like he didn't know the difference. He looked out over the assembly, and he said, this assembly feels empty to me now. You know, empty of Sariputta and Moggallana. So loss is part of life, and we can use it as a wake-up call. You all know Steve Jobs died recently, right? Uh, oh, right, you've been on retreat <laughs> for three months. He did. Anyway, he's had cancer for several years. And um, sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, there's a few years ago, after he'd been um, first had an operation, his first operation for cancer, he was giving a commencement address at Stanford, a whole long address. And he, it said that he talked for maybe a third of the address, he talked about death, what he'd learned from it. I just want to quote you one line of him. Remembering that I will be dead soon is the most important tool I have ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. It's like knowing how things are. And this, again, is it news. We know what's really important to us. And that, that kind of habitual fear or disconnect, I don't want to have to feel the sadness that I might die or the sadness that someone I love may not be there the next time. That's too unsettling, you know? We're like the stock market. So we move back into denial without even realizing it. So part of our practice, and I'll talk about this with Dukkha next week, is really just bringing that tender awareness to the sadness. That's okay. Mindfulness of sadness is just as good as mindfulness of bliss. We don't need to be afraid of it. And that willingness to be present with things as they are really is what allows our perception, our hearts, our minds to open to the truth and open into life. This is from Deepama. You know who Deepama was, right? This wonderful Indian uh, woman, little tiny woman. She's maybe four feet high. Very um, accomplished yogi, very much metta. She said, there is so much sameness in ordinary life. We're always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once, and the lenses are greed, hatred, and delusion. She says, once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, You see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now, every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. That's the other side of opening into impermanence. The clinging actually freezes our perception. It it, shuts down our openness to whatever is happening in life, and it narrows the field 
of what we can perceive of what we're comfortable with. And it's like Deepa Ma says, you know, we're always looking through the same set of lenses. So just the beginning to open to the perception of impermanence starts to have that effect when we recognize accurately and we don't have to be afraid of sadness, of the poignancy, of loss. Okay, loss is like this. It too will change. Then there's that every moment is new. Every moment is fresh. And that's really how it is. That's really how it is. And so we can use like Steve Jobs using his own experience as a wake-up call to see the change, or using our resistance to the experience. Use your um, experience of your physical condition. A lot of people, different people here, not you may be getting older, or you may have a certain like injury that's making uh, you have to walk or sit or do things in a different way, or you don't have the same energy you had 20 years ago or whatever. Just use that and our reactions and responses to it, not as a problem. All right, this is how life is. Watch the whole show, the changes, the reactions in the mind, the time that the mind pretends it isn't like that, the time that it feels better and the mind goes, okay, now it's going to be good from now on for the rest of my life and the rest of my life is going to be good and steady and then I'll just end, that's over. But until then, everything's going to be good, you know. So when it's not, use it as a wake-up call. Use the sadness or the shockingness of hearing uh, people around us are ill or sick or dying. Yes, we feel sad. That's okay. That's compassion. We can open into that. We don't have to be afraid of it. Just today, someone was telling me at lunch, um, she's in, a, in a, an ongoing group, uh, a study group of about 100 people, and she said, and they kind of have an online blog that they check in with each other every week or so. And she was saying, uh, in, the last, in the last two months or so, two or three people in that group have had either really bad accidents or a stroke or another person died. And she said, now it's getting to where every week people in the group are putting up on the blog, oh, add to your metta prayers my cousin, you know, or my partner or my, my mother who's in the hospital or my... Uh, my niece who has this disease or whatever. And she, she starts, she's starting to see, she's like, every week there's something new. And I kind of realized, I was just thinking about it and thinking how most of us, there's periods in our life when we see it, but most of us have a smaller circle of intimates. Huh? So we can go for a fair amount of time somewhere and we hear about it on the news all the time. And for sure, sometimes it's too much. But it's not like every week another intimate person got cancer or got sick or their child had some accident or on and on. And that's what my friend's experiencing right now. So when we have the strength of mindfulness, not to get overwhelmed by it, not to get lost in negativity, but the strength to see, oh yes, that's how this life is. We really, really never know. It can take us in the direction that Deepama was talking about, or as Steve Jobs said, that we can make the decisions that are important to us, or that we realize this moment now is the only thing I really know and can really count on. And as Dogen said, 
If you can't see the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? So that's one aspect, I think, of one piece I wanted to talk about, about our resistance and denial and not recognizing the perception of permanence, of impermanence, because it's just painful, scary, unsettling, and we're not comfortable with that. The other side, of course, is the beauty and the mystery. And I'll talk about that again in a minute. That third aspect of misperceiving, the level where we don't even know, we're not even denial or resistance, but we don't even know that we're perceiving permanence. I just a little bit want to talk about that in terms of our practice here. This is one of the, the gifts of having the interest and the time to come on an intensive retreat. We can also bring this into our life, but this gets kind of subtle sometimes. And that's why intensive retreat can be helpful. To see how one way we assume permanence, I heard this from a talk that Dalai Lama was giving once. We tend to think, I know things are impermanent, like I'm impermanent. I was born, I lived for a while, and even though I can see changes, I feel like it's still been me all this time, and then I'll die. So things come together, they exist for a while, and then they go apart. And we think that's impermanence. And the Dalai Lama is saying, no, no, no. And it's true. What we don't recognize is what I've alluded to, the momentariness of change. There's no exists for a while, the same, and then goes away. Change is happening every moment, every moment. One place you can see that is, uh, well, think about it, is in seeing, the experience of seeing. You know, we see. Really, if you were really just paying attention to the eye door to seeing, it's different every single instant, just slightly different. But, and it's useful conceptually in order to function, our mind puts it together in a way that looks steady, that looks solid, you know. But actually, everything's changing every single instant, and we don't notice it. Again, today, and I don't, I don't know brain science, so I'm sure this is extremely superficial. And if any of you uh, know it, please don't be offended by my superficiality. But this is just what someone told me today. No, yesterday, we were, uh, he was, we were talking about change. We were talking about death. It was somebody's birthday party. So what else do we talk about? Change and death. <laughs> We, then we started apologizing, and she, the person whose birthday was, said, no, no, I love to talk about death. That's a, what else is there? But anyway, so it came up in this conversation, one of the guys who's done a lot of study about brain science and the way um, the brain perceives things. This is from the, not from the Buddhist perspective, but from scientist perspective. And he said they, uh, specifically about sight and about thoughts that from various experiments, and I don't know what experiments, that these scientists have done, they've, they've come to the, well, they think it's true, so that's what they think is true, that the way consciousness or the brain can perceive, can actually see, is only because of the change. That if there was absolutely no change, if there was no movement whatsoever, the eye, the brain, the, the eye could see, but the brain couldn't interpret it as seeing. 
And they've done some experiments. I don't know what. I don't want to know what. But, and the same thing with thoughts. That if it's just a thought that never moves, that never changes, we don't even recognize it. Okay, I, as I said, don't know how they figured that out. Because we'll never know a thought that doesn't change, will we? And, and the thing that sight that doesn't change, it's changing every second. And that's the only way that we can perceive. But because the change is so rapid, for sure, our mind puts it together in some way that it looks steady state. That's useful. It's not that that perception is so wrong that we want to throw it out. It's not that when we open to impermanence, we can't tell anything apart anymore. You know what I mean? Sometimes people get afraid of that. Well, if, if I see there's no solidity to this body, and there are times in meditation when that's your actual perceptual physical experience. There's no solid anything. There's just sensations arising in space. And then you think about, how can I function? How can I stand up? How can I eat? If there's just sensation and there's no solidity and no space, where's the food going to go? You know, we can go into all kinds of stuff about that. So one way in conventional reality, it's useful. It works. That doesn't have to go away. But we can recognize when we perceive the actual changing nature, we can recognize that this is a conventional way that works, but it's not the way things always are. Just you can kind of see both, you know, like those um, trompe l'oeil things where if you look at it one way, you see a profile, and if you look at it another way, you see two vases. And both ways of seeing are in that same picture. It's like that. And so, really, the impermanence that Dalai Lama is talking about and the impermanence that it's so hard for us to see in our speedy lives are the fa- is the fact that there is no stasis ever. It's like someone mentioned this at a retreat a couple years ago. I thought it was a great image. She was seeing it herself. She said it's like, like time-lapse photography. You know, if you see a, a time-lapse photography of, of, um, of a plant growing, and there's just the dirt, and then you just see the little leaf begin to push up from the dirt, and the whole plant grows, and then the flower blooms, and then it goes away, and then the flower drops, and the fruit, and all of this, you know, so they're making that fast. You see the whole thing. But in that, you also see there is, there is no place where it's just the flower or just the leaf or just that. There is no place where it stops and says, now we're just going to be flower for a while. You know, it's always the conditions are coming together and they make the condition for this moment. And then this moment is the condition for the next moment. There's um, a phrase I, I use a lot. It's, um, it's, it's, it's one of the insights in Vipassana called yata bhutanyana dasana. It's in the suttas a lot, usually translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are, which gives a kind of solid feeling to things. But friends who, who know Polly better than I have said that a much better translation is things as they have come to be just in this moment. Knowledge and vision means recognizing accurately things as they have come to be in this moment. They've come to be, and only for an instant is it like this. And then it's changing, and then it's changing, and then it's changing. There's no, you know, as I say, there's no there there. And that, to me, isn't scary. That opens 
into the mystery, into what else is there to do but really appreciate as best we can the mystery and the wonder of right now and the fact that everything that's happening right now is part of the condition for things having come to be as they are right now. Nothing can be left out. You start to think about what conditions came together for things as they have come to be right now, that we're all sitting here together in this room. If we start enumerating conditions, you can never stop, can you? Just the conditions that kept each one of us alive and the food that we've eaten and the people that supported us and the farmers that grew the food and the guys that drove the trucks and the people who owned the farm and their parents that gave birth to them. And it, it can't ever come to an end. There's no separation anywhere. Ajahn Pasano, in his book, The Island, and he's talking about this in another way. I hope this makes sense. It does to me, but sometimes it's a little, uh, the language is a little complicated. He's talking about the experience of stream entry, Sotapanna, and one of the lines that's often given in a sutta when, when somebody recognizes the Dhamma. It says, the eye of Dhamma is open, and the line is often, Oh, the eye of Dhamma is open. I see all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. And Ajahn Pasano is again going into a more accurate translation. So this is his language. He says, what would be more accurate from the Pali to the English would be instead of all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing would be whatever arising Dhamma cessation Dhamma. Dhamma meaning thing. And he goes on to say, it's not good English, but it's great Dhamma. Because English grammar requires a subject and a verb. So all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So something arises and ceases in English. So Dhamma comes across as a thing that arises and ceases. I've seen the Dhamma, this thing that arises, and then this thing goes away. And you get it? If there's a thing, there's that moment in there where there's that thingness that the Dalai Lama is saying, no, that's not so. A thing has existence in time. So whatever thing arises or is subject to arising, then subsequently ceases. But if we consider stream entry as something profound, it would be useful to consider the experience that to be one in which the very process that brings things into awareness is seen into. In other words, the mind is experiencing an event stream, a dynamic of arising and ceasing that rules out substantiality. Really, in talking about emptiness, it's this emptiness of thingness, this emptiness of unchanging existence in time. And that is what impermanence opens us into. So cultivating perception of impermanence, a very simple but profound teaching from Ajahn Chah. With everything, just recognize to yourself, it is uncertain. This is uncertain. Sustain this reflection on impermanence as you meditate. Every single sense object and mental state you experience is impermanent, without exception. In the course of meditation, 
reflect that the distracted mind is uncertain. When the mind does become calm with samadhi, it's uncertain just the same. The reflection on impermanence is the thing you can really hold on to. You don't need to give too much importance to anything else. Don't get involved with the things that arise in the mind. Let go. Even if you are peaceful, you don't need to think too much about it. Don't take it too seriously. Don't take it too seriously if you're not peaceful either. Vinyanam anicham. Have you ever read that anywhere? It means sense consciousness is impermanent. Have you ever heard that before? How can you train yourself in relation to this truth? How can you contemplate when you find that both peaceful and agitated mind states are transient? The important thing is to sustain awareness of the way things are. Sounds familiar, huh? Just sustaining awareness moment to moment on the way things are. Reality is how it is. It reveals itself. We don't have to, now I'm going to go out and really see impermanence. Just sustain awareness on the way things are. And you'll notice when we're assuming permanence. And we're assuming now it's going to be like this for the next hour, for the next day, for the next moment. When we're trying to repeat an experience, let's get all the conditions exactly the same as they were yesterday at this time. Knowing that's impossible. Every moment is just its own perfect moment and it's gone. Can't recreate it. Conditions are always changing. Notice when we can just rest at ease in whatever arises. So just explore this. It's uncertain. When the mind's in reaction, don't take it too seriously, but meet it with awareness. When, you're, when we're seeing that things are always changing, that sense of that willingness to open into the mystery, don't take that too seriously either, but just notice it. I just want to end with a poem by Hafiz, the 14th century Persian poet, about this. And this translation is called Deepening the Wonder. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Or you can laugh and sing internally.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.